All right, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 16th, 2015. This week is episode 352. We're coming to you from Studio D at the world headquarters of IAQ Training Institute and IAQ Radio. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is Frank Amato. Today's guests are going to be Dr. Richard Corsi and Josh Aldred. They're calling in from the University of Texas. We're going to talk a little bit about mostly filtration today, and uh, but also this is a continuation of our series on bringing research to practice, and, and we look forward to that interview. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors, Ondon Products, where restoration and abatement contractor shop Visit them at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N, dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at CleanFacts, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. We have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Of course, you can get the show from iTunes, you can subscribe to our podcast, and you can go to the iaqradio.com website, and there's a link that says go to show. You can listen streaming right from our homepage. If you want to download, you need to go to show and then download from there. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. We've got the new 2015 schedule up. Now, for today's IAQ radio trivia question, unfortunately, the Z-Man, my co-host and partner, had a family emergency today, and he won't be able to join us, so I come up with a quick one here. Let's get the theme song. I am pretty sure Andy Krasowski got the last one correct. I don't have it here. Like I said, the Z-Man's gone. But today's IAQ Radio trivia question is sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been advocating for their members for over 30 years. You can learn more about them at their website, trsca.org. All right, for today's question, I want listeners to tell me, I I purposely didn't say it today, I want to know my engineer, Frank Amato's uh, nickname here on the show. You get me that one, and we'll get you out a prize. So type it in or email it to joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. All right, so today's show, we've got Dr. Richard Corsi and Josh Aldred. We're talking about research to practice, and and Josh's uh, dissertation for his PhD is going to be the nexus of energy and health 
a systems analysis of the costs and benefits of ozone control by activated carbon filtration in buildings. And Dr. Corsi has been with us before. Most of you know he is the ECH Bantel Professor for Professional Practice, Civil Architectural and Enviro Environmental Engineering at the University of Texas in Austin. He's joined us now with, uh, this will be the second time I think we've had one of his uh, doctoral students, doctoral uh, candidate students on the show with us. Now, we don't know Josh, all right? And Josh is currently serving in the U.S. Air Force, and they are sponsoring his attendance at the University of Texas while he completes his work on his Ph.D. In 2010 till 2012, he was an instructor and assistant professor at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and he's still active duty in the Air Force, but stationed very nicely in Austin, Texas, so right down the road, and he can spend time with the doctor and the others at the university there while working on his Ph.D. He also has done some interesting papers on the types of ambient air pollution issues that military personnel serving in the Middle East have gone through, along with a good bit of information, and we'll talk a lot about this, on ozone control by activated carbon filtration in buildings. And, and it's not just ozone, it's something I want to talk a little bit more about. But before we get started, I think we got a real quick clip. I love this. All right, Texas Flood for my guys calling in from Texas. Let's unmute them. Gentlemen, do we have you on the line? Hi, Joe. All Hi, right, Joe. all right, all right. Now let's get let's get this right here, Doctor Corsi. Let's get your voice. Uh, I'm it's, I'm really pleased to be back on the show, Joe. Good to have you with us, and thanks for uh, helping us organize this little talk we're going to have today with Josh. Josh Aldred, let's hear what you have to say. Hey, Joe. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Good to have you, and thanks for your service there. Now, are you are you still? actively involved in uh you know military duties as well while you're going through this uh this work with the university yeah uh i do have like some some small military duties that i need to you know follow up on while i'm here but my primary job is to just go to school full-time and get the, the phd knocked out in three years so that's the that's the goal the air force wants me to accomplish while i'm here nice well, that's a nice thing for the for them to do now that and i assume you'll I think you and I emailed back and forth. You may well go back to the Air Force Academy and teach when you're done. That's correct. Yeah. Um, right now, there's estimated maybe like 2018 or 2019. I'll go back and teach, and in the meantime, I'll go back to an Air Force uh, civil engineer job, and we'll go back on um, basically managing infrastructure on some of the Air Force bases around the world. Oh, that fits in nicely with what you're doing here. Now. As far as what you taught, what, what did you teach at the Air Force Academy? So uh, some of the things I taught at the Air Force Academy include uh, we ta I taught Introduction to Environmental Engineering. Um, I also taught Introduction to Air Force Engineering, which was a freshman-level course that was required for all freshmen at the Air Force Academy. Basically, it was kind of an introduction to all different engineering di disciplines that were offered as majors there. Okay. And then I also um, had the opportunity to work with some other colleagues um, from different departments on a like a multidiscipline class um, where we were trying to work on some water treatment um, ideas for Mozambique and we were planning to send some students there to kind of teach the locals how to make water these water filters and incorporate a lot of different um, specialties at the academy including foreign language history economics 
Um, we also did a little bit of work on microenterprise and microlending. So it was kind of a neat, a neat uh, class that we had to uh, offer. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I, I know a lot of our listeners realize this, but you know, many people don't. A lot of new technology, a lot of new uh, applications, they, they come out of the military. I mean, you, you've got to set up bases. People have to, you know, eat, drink, live. Uh, you know, you have to get rid of waste, etc. And and uh, oftentimes under a very difficult situation. So I, I, I'm wondering, are there anything anything you can think of that might kind of tie that in with what people deal with every day? What, what everyday thing that we, you know, we use or, or um, we're around came from military, um, you know, applications? Um, well, actually, I, I think a lot of um, the primary applications for carbon, a lot of them were probably original, originate in the military. Uh, I know for a fact that like our, our chemical suits that we wear for um, chemical training, uh, they're embedded with charcoal, and uh, that will basically stop a lot of the like nerve agents and things like that from penetrating to your skin or your respiratory area. That's interesting. So, so rather than just block it, they're kind of absorbing it. Yeah, basically, it's kind of like a sacrificial layer to absorb the, you know, whatever agent it is, and basically keep it from diffusing further down into uh, next to your skin. Hmm. Interesting. And I would add. I would add a couple of things also, Joe. I mean, there's um, the military has has really advanced and developed technologies for, you know, rapid building of bridges and that type of thing that we now use on the civilian side uh, in in catastrophes and Katrina types of things. You know, that technology, the, the, the ability to rapidly mobilize and put infrastructure in place is really grounded in, in what we've learned in the military, or what I shouldn't say we, but Josh and his colleagues have learned through, through the military. Well, and I, I guess a lot of things like what I'm trying to deal with right now, these internet-based, you know, the internet itself, I, I think essentially came from military research, and, um, you know, the, the, a lot of, I would imagine a lot of new technology comes from that side of things as well. All right. Well, gentlemen, let's get into the papers a little bit here. I, I want to start, Josh. Let's start with you, Dr. Corsi. Can you, can you summarize for listeners, you know, how Josh, uh, how understanding about his research can help them better understand, you know, how to put it into practice? Sure. Um, just sort of big picture quickly, I guess. Do Josh is dealing in his dissertation with ozone. Um, and ozone is a pretty nasty chemical. We, we know that. We regulate it outdoors. It chemically reacts with the lining of our lungs, and it causes inflammation in the lungs, and that can cause a whole range of respiratory problems that, you know, at the, at the extreme end, cause people to die. So we know that mortality goes up in cities when ozone concentrations levels go up. What I think there's a misperception of is that you have to be outside to be affected by ozone. And it turns out that, you know, all of the epidemiological data we have, all the health data we have for populations across the U.S., they build in the fact that people are spending time indoors. You know, we spend 70 of our 79 years of life inside of buildings. And so that's where we're exposed to most pollution, even pollution of outdoor origin. It, it turns out from some recent studies that depending upon which city you live in and what type of person you are, on average, 50% or more of your exposure to ozone happens inside of buildings. So... So to put Josh's work in perspective, he's basically asking the question, can we, can we rid ourselves of that 50% of the exposure to ozone? Is there something we can do to buildings to essentially reduce 
the entire population's exposure to ozone by 50%, which would have tremendous health benefits, we believe. So um, Josh's work is focused on uh, using activated carbon, um, which is readily available today. Um, from a practical standpoint, it can, you know, we could do this today if we wanted to as a nation. Um, and using activated carbon, uh, which is oftentimes used for removing volatile organic compounds from indoor air and that type of thing. But it turns out to be very effective at, at reacting with and removing ozone without producing any bad byproducts. And so Josh is focusing on the costs and the benefits associated with retrofitting buildings of all sorts, residential, commercial, school, healthcare facilities, et cetera, retrofitting those buildings with activated carbon, how much it would cost as a nation, how much it would cost for a building owner, uh, and what the benefits would be to people that occupy that building. So that's sort of his research in a nutshell. He's doing tremendous um, modeling work. So he's doing these large 12-city population analyses um, with, a, with, a, with a really novel model that we've developed. Um, and he's also uh, doing some laboratory experiments with some filters to develop some of the parameters for the filters that we need for the models to that uh, weren't available in the literature. You know, let's, if we could back up a little bit on the, on the health side of things. Um, I, I sometimes see controversy about, you know, how damaging ozone is for, for people. And we're, um, I, I'm curious, what, what, are the, what are the known health effects with respect to ozone? And is that because of the ozone itself or is it because of other reactions that occur because of the ozone in indoor environments? So you're, that's a great question. So it's definitely ozone itself. Um, and ozone does react in the indoor environments, as you've said, Joe, which is one of the reasons that the, con the levels of ozone are lower indoors. Um, and it, when it chemically reacts indoors, it forms a whole bunch of different what we call reaction products, byproducts. Those are gases and, and particles in the indoor environment. Um, we think that some of those are, you know, health scientists think that some of those are very irritating and maybe worse toxic, but the toxicological data on many of those, on the, many of those byproducts are not well known at all. Um, and so at this point, we know that ozone is a problem and there's some uncertainty about the reaction products. Um, my, I suspect that some of those reaction products contribute to the health effects, but we just don't know that with as much of certainty at this point. Let's get some numbers. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, you had asked about the specific health effects. Yes. You know, what it basically does is cause inflammation of the lungs and that, you know, people that have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, asthma, um, you know, people that are already prone to having respiratory problems are, are definitely very much affected by ozone. Um, in, the, in the worst case, it can cause just constriction of lungs and some difficulty breathing. And in the worst case, it can cause people to die, with, you know, that are... Um, from from uh, respiratory or, or heart uh, problems. Now, one of the things I've also heard is that, that you know, and I want to clarify this for listeners as well, is that, that we have to have ozone. It's, it's a part of our, you know, it's a part of the natural environment that it's created in, in numerous ways and um, that it can have some beneficial effects as well. But I, I just want to kind of get an idea of if that's accurate, first of all. And secondly, let's get some numbers. What are the typical ozone levels in, you know, the, the typical outdoor environment versus the indoor environment? And either one of you can jump on that one. 
So um, this is Rich, and Josh, you can jump in if you want, but there is a global background level of ozone that's increasing slowly. You know, you measure levels of ozone over the Pacific Ocean, and you pick up ozone. It, it, you're right. It is naturally occurring. It's formed from lightning. It's formed naturally. Background levels, you know, sort of on the order of 20 parts per billion kind of thing, background global levels. Um, a part per billion, if you want to think about it, is one molecule – uh, amongst a billion uh, molecules of, of air. Um, so it's you know, relatively low concentrations, but with pollutants, oftentimes low concentrations or low levels can cause health problems. In cities, during the summer ozone season, in a place like Austin, we're looking at levels on the order of maybe 80 parts per billion, so four times that Pacific background. Uh, in other cities, you can get up to peak one-hour levels of 100, 110, 120 parts per billion in the United States. And by the way, those levels are you know, considerably lower than when I was growing up in the 1960s in Los Angeles, where they were double or triple at times, those levels. So hmm. we've made great impacts in lowering ozone levels outdoors, but on bad days in a place like Houston or Phoenix or uh, other cities, uh, Philadelphia, New York, you know, 110 part per billion for an hour, 120 part per billion, 100 part per billion can still happen. And you, and you move outside the U.S. to places like Mexico City, uh, you know, and cities in India and that type of thing, and you can have much, much higher levels than that. Then we're, then we're at the Los Angeles uh, 1960s levels and around the world. Okay. And what about indoors, Josh? Um, it, it, so, so the indoor is uh, – de- it really depends upon the design of the building. So if the building has a lot of fresh air intake, commercial building that's, you know, two air changes per hour. We have laboratories on campus that are 12 air changes per hour. You know, in those buildings that have very higher exchange rates, uh, the indoor levels of ozone are, you know, maybe 30% lower than outdoors because of the chemical reactions that occur with ozone on surfaces indoors. But in a building that's very, very well ventilated, you can essentially be almost mimicking the outdoor environment. In newer homes that are very tight, that have air conditioning, that have low air exchange rates, you know, you might only be 5% of, of outdoor levels. Um, so, so you have a lot of ozone reactions that occur indoors um, because the ozone has a lot more time when it comes indoors to chemically react before it leaves and goes back to the outdoor environment. And in those homes, we have lower ozone concentrations, but you can imagine that we have higher levels of all the reaction products we were talking about before. I see. Josh, anything you'd like to add? Um, just to kind of piggyback on what Dr. Corsi was saying, you know, I've actually been studying a lab, a laboratory here on campus that had very high outdoor ventilation rates, and I was seeing, you know, 50 to 60 percent um, indoors uh, when you do the ratio indoor-outdoor ozone. It was about 50 or 60 percent. And just for comparison, I have a newer house here in Austin. I did some tests in my house, and it was more like 5 to 10 percent, just like he said. So. Um, you know, what really is a big determinant is ventilation rates, how much fresh air you're bringing into the building will really dictate, like, how much ozone that you could possibly remove with carbon filtration. You know, it's almost, like, counterintuitive. You, you're, you know, we're, we're taught to go outside and get some fresh air, and, and it sounds like that may not – that is not always the case with ozone, um, that, that outdoors the, the levels are, are going to be higher oftentimes. Is there any time when you – go ahead. I was going to say, no, almost always they're higher outdoors than indoors because of that chemistry that happens indoors. The only time that wouldn't be the case is if you have substantial sources of indoor ozone, so so ozone being generated indoors. So if you're in a 
an office building that has lots of photocopy machines that are not properly maintained, they can emit a lot of ozone. Laser printers can emit ozone when they're operating. So, uh, and there are devices that people purchase to, for whatever reason, ozonate their houses, um, to, um, which I don't recommend, um, that generate a lot of ozone. Um, there are devices on the market that are designed to remove particles from indoor air and are actually very effective at removing particles from indoor air but at the same time, they generate ozone uh, and can generate a lot of ozone. So there are other sources of ozone besides outdoor air that happen in some buildings um, um, and sometimes intermittently at very high levels. And, and so, okay, you actually anticipated my question there, so we're right on the same page. Now, let's talk a little bit about activated carbon and activated carbon filtration. First, I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned that Activated carbon is a, a pretty good, pretty good um, filtration for removal of ozone. Is it, does it remove it or break it down? And and secondly, how long? I, I mean, I never, I knew that there was some removal. I don't. How long have we known that that it was as effective as what you're stating here today? Oh, well, go ahead, John. Oh, I was going to say, I I feel like um, from a lot of the. the research I've done in the literature, in most cases, the carbon will chemically react with the ozone. Yeah, so it doesn't, you know, filter ozone like a filter would filter a particle. The ozone actually chemically reacts with uh, functional groups on the carbon. Uh, it actually reacts with the carbon, and uh, what we have found and what other people have found is that, um, you know, when it reacts with carbon, we really don't produce any byproducts that are of any concern, which is different than, for example, if ozone reacts with carpet, and you do produce a lot of byproducts. Um, so it's a chemical reaction with the ozone. It does break down the ozone, and so, you know, ozone challenges the carbon um, uh, over time, and so the carbon has to be replaced. Um, and but the technology, you know, we've known for many, 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 many decades that activated carbon can remove ozone. And, and I, I kind of like to piggyback on that. I think it's a really neat material. In fact, I put a, a filter in one of the university labs here on campus, and I was doing some research on the, the type of carbon that they sourced. And basically, it has 1,100 square meters of surface area per gram of carbon, which means there's a lot of different sites on, on the carbon that ozone and other compounds can attach to and, and react with. So they attach to and then react. All right. And then I, I, are, what other filtration media is also good, effective at, as ozone and breaking down ozone? There are none that are commercially available that are anywhere near as effective. So there are a lot of materials that are very chemically reactive with ozone. I mentioned carpet, for example. Um, anything that's coated with vegetable oils, um, but they're, they're pretty impractical to use as, as, as filtration devices in an HVAC system. What about like- carbon is also relatively inexpensive. Go ahead, Josh. I was also going to mention that there are some filters out there that have titanium dioxide or magnesium oxide mm -hmm. um, as catalysts to remove ozone and sometimes formaldehyde, but some of the consequences of using that is they could shed magnesium or uh, titanium particles, which could be hazardous uh, to breathe in. So one of the great things about carbon is just, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be harmful if you actually breathe a little bit in compared to some of the other materials that are out there. And it's fairly inexpensive and, and, and somewhat plentiful, as I understand it. So that's that's all pluses for the carbon side. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. I, I know I've heard of titanium dioxide and maybe some other 
Um, does titanium dioxide do as good of a job as, as carbon, or is it? Uh, do you not know? Well, it's usually embedded in something like activated carbon, um, so it's there with the carbon uh, to sort of enhance enhance the reactions, if you will. But as Josh said, that some of these uh, metallic compounds can also do a job of uh, decomposing formaldehyde. Hmm. So there's a little extra benefit there. A little extra benefit, but they're also more expensive, aren't they? I would agree with that, yeah. Okay. Uh, carbon is you know, one of the great things about it is it's relatively inexpensive, and, um, you know, it's very effective what it does. So if you're doing, like, a cost-benefit analysis on these different types of filters, I would argue that carbon's probably your best option as far as amount of pollutants removed per cost. All right, let's talk a little bit about the the – the applications here we talked a little before the show and, and i noticed in the one paper you're using four inch pleated filters that had activated carbon um and i'm not sure exactly how it's attached to that maybe you could we could start with that how do we attach that activated carbon to these and and how much activated carbon is attached to let's say that four inch filter that you studied josh um, well, actually, Joe, just in my experience, I've seen a couple of different options for how these filters are constructed. Um, a really a common type is this activated carbon fiber cloth. Basically, they have like polyester strands that um, they they shoot like a, a carbon emulsion onto these these polymer fibers with an adhesive, and uh, that's pretty common for the carbon fiber type uh, product. I've also seen a product that actually has bulk uh, carbon media that's kind of suspended in this like this fiber mesh um, so you have a particle filter you know at the beginning of the filter where the air goes in and then on the back side you have this suspended um, bulk media that will contain carbon and react with the ozone and then the other uh, option I've seen I've, and this is the filter I installed in a lab here on campus is the really large it's 24 by 24 inches uh, wide by high and then about 12 inches deep and it's just packed full of bulk carbon media and it's kind of just basically suspended in the in the sheet metal um, and uh, construction of the fiber. So it's just basically a huge amount of carbon uh, just sitting there in the filter that the air has to basically go through and react uh, with to pass through the filter. And what's what's the cost difference between let's say we've got a, a standard you know, one inch, 24 by 24, you know, I don't know, yeah, let's just say 24 by 24 um, pleated filter, you know, we know that the, the cost on that, what does it cost to add the carbon component? You know, um, differential cost. yeah, so the differential cost, I mean, can vary, and this has been part of my research is kind of investigate these costs. I found that if you actually buy these filters in bulk, like from Amazon or another supplier, um, it's really kind of a wash, uh, you know, if you were to go down to Home Depot and buy a regular particle filter, you know, like a MERV 7 or 8 versus a MERV 7 or 8 carbon filter. Um, depending on where you buy it and if you do a little bit of market research, it's almost a wash, but in some cases it can be 10 to $15 more expensive for a one-inch filter. Hmm. And how much carbon, uh, let's put it this way, how much lifespan will we lose on that filter by adding the carbon? Will we lose any or will we lose a lot? I don't think you'd lose any. In fact, uh, you know, you're going to have a little bit extra particle removal effectiveness because of the media, the carbon media that's on the filter, especially those those filters that have um, bulk media that's suspended in the filter. Um, I think that 
there, you know, what you've got to be concerned about is how long the carbon will last. You know, obviously ozone is going to react with it. It's going to degrade the carbon over time. So most of the filter manufacturers we talked to recommended changing them out every three months. Yeah, that's pretty much a standard. I mean, some people go every six months on a regular filter, but every three months is not, it's certainly not um, excessive, I wouldn't think, in, in uh, most commercial applications anyway. That's interesting. All right. Well, gentlemen, we're, we're real close to halftime here. What I'd like to do is I want to stop for our halftime break, thank our sponsors, and then when we come back, we're going to go into a little more detail on, on your, you know, your cost-benefit analysis of, of um, this type of filtration and talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, what people can do to help their clients. So we'll be back for the second half of our show here in about 90 seconds with Dr. Richard Corsi and Josh Aldred. They're calling in from the University of Texas at Austin, and uh, we'll be right back. Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit their website at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at J-O-N-D-O-N, that's johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and C-M-M-Online.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their services or products. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Josh Aldred and Dr. Richard Corsi. Okay, gentlemen, on the second half, I, I have some questions about you know the, the specific research um, that Josh has been doing, and I think to start out, I, I'm curious about the the design of the of the testing that you did in different buildings. So. Um, what are we looking at here, Josh? Did you take a certain building and then just install these filters and, and measure before and after? Or maybe give us a little more detail on that. Sure. Uh, I actually, I can only truthfully say I put it in one building, put these carbon filters in one building in a lab on campus. And um, yeah, basically, it, I took ozone uh, measurements before and after um, the, the carbon filter to see what the, the ozone removal effectiveness was. 
And this was one of the large bulk media filters that I was talk, telling you about. I think it had about 20 pounds of carbon in it. Um, and I was getting about 70% uh, on average removal efficiency through the filter. 70%. So I'd like to, <laughs> Joe, I'd like to add that the, um, the, the 12 city study that we're talking about was actually a very large uh, modeling effort where we took building stock and building stock information consistent with different cities in the southwest and the northeast, et cetera. It was a project, a very large project funded by ASHRAE. And so that was actually a, a, a big modeling effort using um, geographic specific information for buildings and meteorology, et cetera. And we estimated uh, the cost benefit analyses for activated carbon in those in those cities, but it was a big it was a large modeling modeling study. I see, but I mean, you had to base the the study on some actual results from a building. I mean, as far as the reduction goes, is that accurate or? Yeah, so we took a lot of information from the the literature and as well as work that we've done in the past in in laboratory environments uh, in our test house at the University of Texas. And then Josh has actually added to that some work in a building on campus, which actually bears out the results of our modeling. It suggests very similar kinds of results as what our modeling does. And what kind of results did the modeling come up with? Well, uh, you know, we have a couple different buildings that we modeled. Um, let me pull up my results here. Uh, one of the probably the best results that we saw were for long-term healthcare facilities or nursing homes. And um, basically, this is because we looked at the, pop, the demographics of people that are in those buildings. They're typically over the age of 65. They're elderly and already sensitive to, um, you know, different pollutants or may have already had respiratory issues. And, you know, in those types of buildings, during the summer ozone season, we saw benefit-cost ratios over 100 um, in all 12 cities. So regardless of the outdoor ozone concentration, because you're bringing in so much fresh air into those types of facilities, you're removing a lot through the filter, a lot of ozone through the filter. Um, you're providing a lot of benefit to the people inside, and that's probably one of the most sensitive groups um, to ozone is people over the age of 65. So um, I think that's that's one of the modeling um, takeaways that we're really proud of is that um, this could be really beneficial for people that are living in long-term health facilities or nursing homes. Now, when you say, uh, I think it's cost-benefit analysis, uh, 100, what do you mean by 100? What, give us something concrete on for those of us that aren't, you know, scientists that, uh, you know, do modeling. Sure. Um, so, basically, we use the benefit-cost ratio. So, what that means is for um, every dollar of cost that goes into providing the filtration, um, we'll get over $100 in, in potential benefits. So, in most cases, you want at least a one uh, a value of one for benefit cost analysis, and I think a lot, to, you know, kind of change policy, you're shooting more for like a 10 for benefit cost ratio. So I, I think that uh, this is kind of a home run as far as activated carbon filters go. And I would add, Joe, that in terms of cost, what we're looking at is not the cost of the activated carbon filter itself, but the differential cost, the, the increase in cost between uh, a normal particle filter and an activated carbon filter that has the same MERV rating. So we take that cost as the capital and recurring cost if it's replaced every three months. And then we also look at the costs associated with uh, any additional um, energy required for the larger pressure drop through an activated carbon filter. So that's all built into the cost. So it's the cost of the filter, the differential cost of the filter itself and the operating cost, the energy cost. The benefits are estimated um, based upon 
essentially what the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency uses to estimate um, health consequences to, to populations exposed to ozone, and a dollar cost to um, to those health consequences. So lost school days for children, and parents having to stay home with their children, and lost work days and hospitalizations and that type of thing. And there's dollar amounts that are essentially associated with all of those. Uh, our approach was actually a little bit more conservative than what the U.S. EPA does for outdoor air quality benefits. In other words, if anything, we underestimated the benefits so that our our numbers might be a little bit low. Um, so we took a more conservative approach. I, you know, I'm just thinking, this is, um, wh wh what year was this? study published is it this was published correct yeah so right now uh, Josh is working on three different papers to get All the right. word out about his results that's part of the requirement for his PhD dissertation to get the word out in in journal papers um, and we've we've published and presented some of the work at indoor air 2014 in Hong Kong so very recently because this is this is very yeah. um, uh, it, it seems to me it could be a it could lead to a big change in, in what people do in the field. I mean, right now, primarily we look at particulate and, um, you know, we help people reduce the amount of particulate in their buildings and homes. That's been, that's been the focus, let's put it that way. This would be like a, a seismic shift in the focus if I'm understanding what you're saying properly. Uh, whereas, you know, we should be really pushing and promoting based on what you're seeing at this point using activated carbon in addition to lowering the filtration or lowering the particulate levels through filtration. Is that accurate to say? Oh, yeah, I'll agree with that, Joe. And, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I would say that, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. I, I can jump in if you'd like. Please so do. I, I think the answer to your question, Joe, is right now I think it's a no-brainer uh, for certain types of buildings. Um, so that, it's a no-brainer for certain types of buildings. Schools, for example, we've done estimates for New York City, and, and our estimates show you know thousands and thousands of, of lost school days that we could make up for with, with activated carbon and school use in school buildings. So no-brainers in schools, healthcare facilities, many commercial buildings, and a no-brainer in homes with people that have certain respiratory diseases. It's sort of marginal in residential buildings for an entire population, but it makes a lot of sense for people to do have respiratory problems in residences. No brainer in, at this point in most commercial buildings, schools, healthcare facilities. And I, and I would also add that, um, you know, if if there was a move in that direction, the expectation would be, I think, that the cost of activated carbon filters would drop because of the demand. Um, uh, you know, right now, manufacturers that make activated carbon filters, um, you know, they, they just, not that many are used, right? So mm -hmm. if, if there's a greater demand, I think the cost could come down and that would make it easier for people to use them. The cost, yeah, the availability. To piggyback on Dr. Corsi's uh, comments, you know, I, I think in the paper I sent you, I showed that ASHRAE standard 62.1 um, ventilation guide for buildings, it only requires activated carbon filters in four different counties in, in California. And I think that's something that unique from our results is that um, you could have benefits of activated carbon filters in all sorts of different cities regardless of you know the outdoor ozone um, just because you know how effective they are at, at improving the indoor air quality. Josh what 
what got you interested in this subject? And, and you know, maybe I mean, may, you may have hit a big home run on this. We'll, we'll see how it goes as as time goes on. But um, what what led your what piqued your interest in this? Okay. Uh, well, um, actually, I really got interested in the health side of of these analyses, and that kind of started off in a class I took from Dr. Corsi when I was here as a master's student. I took his human exposure to uh, pollutants in indoor uh, environments class, and he actually gave me the opportunity to kind of study what I wanted, and I just returned from a deployment um, to the Middle East uh, before I went back to grad school. And uh, one of the one of the people I worked with uh, previously on another deployment had just been di diagnosed with asthma, and a lot of the thought was, you know, it was due to the things that he was exposed to while we were deployed. So, I mean, I felt like that was kind of the, the seed that um, got me going, and especially just on the health direction. I was really interested in that. And then um, when I came back from my PhD, Dr. Corsi had this project lined up with ASHRAE. And again, I got really interested in the health side, especially the economics of that. And, you know, potentially the benefit to help a lot of people uh, improve their health by using this technology. Fascinating. I, I, this has been an interesting uh, discussion so far, gentlemen. Let me, let me ask this um, with respect to how does this tie into ventilation rates? So, in other words, if, if we start to add carbon, activated carbon filtration to our particulate filters, will we potentially be able to cut down on ventilation rates as well? Uh, I wouldn't argue to go that far. I, th I think there's definitely some, um, some benefits of adding ventilation, especially in homes, because, you know, in some cases, very tight homes, you have air exchange rates of, like, less than 0.1 per hour extreme. extreme. In a lot of newer energy-efficient homes, it could be really dangerous to, especially, like, uh, for indoor sources of, uh, I'm thinking particularly, like, formaldehyde. If you don't bring in outside air, ventilation air, I mean, you can cause a, cause a hazard. I would say, though, at the other end of the spectrum, if Josh doesn't mind, I'm going to tell his story quickly about the campus building. Campus building we're looking at has extremely high air exchange rates. It's required in laboratory buildings, 12 air changes per hour with fresh air kind of thing. In that particular case, the building is essentially a wind tunnel. And so, you know, we're, we've looked at cutting the air exchange rate down to six air changes per hour. The energy benefits to, to reducing the air exchange rate from 12 to six air changes per hour are, are phenomenal in this building, and we're just looking at one HVAC zone. So what Josh has proposed and done is that you take a small slice of that energy benefit and you put it into purchasing these activated carbon filters, which he's done and the university's put in this building, and we see dramatic reductions or large reductions in the amount of ozone coming from outdoors into this building, uh, and also see some reductions in vol organic compounds because uh, activated carbon is effective at removing some vol organic compounds. So in this particular case, it does make sense to reduce the air exchange rate. We get big energy savings, and that can be put into improving indoor air quality. So it's sort of a win-win. Yeah, and just to, just to give you some background, the energy savings we're talking about in that particular building about nearly $50,000 per year. For one zone. For one for one air handling unit, basically. Yeah. And so, how many air handling units do you have in that building? There's uh, there's two that fully feed laboratories, so there's basically keep essentially double that benefit. And then there's an addition that um, has another air handling unit, but I don't think it's fully occupied. So, you know, in the future, you could essentially maybe triple that benefit if you applied that that strategy across all three air handling units.
Yeah, that's more what I was thinking about, you know, because as with any health benefit, you know, it's it's tough. Um, you know, we've known that for quite some time that increasing, for instance, uh, ventilation rates w would help with absenteeism, but I just have a hard time getting that through to building owners. Um, they don't, you know, but when they see those dollars and cents savings on energy, that's something that you can get through to them quickly. And so that's that's why I asked the question. It was like, you know, okay, um, you know, they 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 want to have. And although you did mention earlier, and I think that's a big one with schools. I would imagine they would be early adopters um, to this type of change, and it's it's a pretty significant change that that I think you're advocating for here. Um, I think they might be early adopters because when they lose a day of attendance, as I understand it, they lose money. Yeah, they do. Most school districts do, and it can add up to quite a lot of money. I'm aware of one school district in in Texas um, who loses several million dollars per year on the order of four or five million dollars per year in, in in lost absences due to asthma attacks and, and other you know childhood respiratory diseases. So if you can dramatically reduce those, the school district gets gets money back. They have to be convinced up front, though, that that this you know capital investment, uh, this investment. Uh, it's going to be worthwhile. Um, school districts are usually, especially public school districts, very, very tight on money. So to get them to spend a lot of money on something new requires a pretty strong argument, convincing argument that there's going to be benefit to the other end. I'm, I'm curious, have you had much luck with uh, convincing the, the lab, you know, uh, that you've been doing the experiments on? Are they, are they going to continue with your program? Yeah, so basically I was working with the uh, environmental health and the energy stewards here on, on the UT campus. And it's kind of a collaboration between between my research and um, those two organizations. The UT energy stewards basically look for opportunities to, to save energy on campus. And the environmental health and safety, they're concerned about, you know, the health of the occupants. So, you know, we kind of want to make sure everybody's on board. And, you know, once I presented my results, everybody was happy. And I think it's a great a great strategy to, you know, save some more energy costs here on, yeah. on the UT campus. And my hope is that this actually does propagate across the campus so that we can do it in the buildings where it makes sense to do it. And just to give you a little back, background on this particular building, it's a newer building that had um, an automated system so we could efficiently collect data, we could remotely control the HVAC system. So, uh, you know, this strategy would be more effective in, in newer buildings like that. Mm -hmm. And so here on the UT campus we have a brand new $300 million engineering building that's getting constructed in the next few years. The University of Texas um, Medical School is getting built. So we're hoping in these types of buildings that we can, you know, employ this, this strategy and hopefully save the university a lot of energy costs. Now, now you mentioned other VOCs, and that's, you know, that's always been the focus of, of adding activated carbon, at least with, you know, up till now when people were dealing with indoor air quality issues, they're they're trying to help reduce other volatile organics that, that, that people may be reacting to or, you know, just they just don't want in their building. Um, how does this, how well do the applications you've been talking about, like these, these filters, the four-inch filter that's got it kind of impregnated into the, into the fiber matrix there, how well do they do on removing VOCs in general? So that, it, the, it's a great question. It's, very dependent upon the specific VOC. So, um, fall organic compounds that are lighter, um, um, not as effectively as things that are heavier. Um, 
larger larger molecules are more easily removed by activated carbon. Um, I think the issue is with the amount of carbon that you see in a lot of these filters, if you don't have enough carbon, the carbon is going to reach a saturation condition pretty quickly for most fall organic compounds. Um, and I suspect, although I don't know this, we haven't done experiments on this, Joe, um, that the filter will probably have a greater benefit for ozone over a long that would be interesting to know. Oop, I think a lot of commercial filters that, that are not that expensive, you'd have to replace them more frequently frequently for, for, for VOC control. I lost you there for a moment. So that, that's interesting as well, um, that ozone, these filters would work for a longer period of time on ozone versus other VOCs. And then you also have the issue of uh, when you're trying to remove VOCs, how much is actually going through the filter, you know, how much of the air in the in the building is going through the filter, et cetera. Exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, all right. Well, that's this has been fascinating, guys. We've got about 10 minutes to go, and, and, and what I'd like to do is kind of talk about, you know, down the road. Um, where are we headed with this? What, what, what's the next step? Where, where are we going? And, and then – you know, what can we tell people out there in the field who are making recommendations um, with respect to people, you know, helping improve their indoor environments? So our next step, and, and you've provided us a great platform here, Joe, our next step is to get the word out about Josh's results. So the research is over. We've submitted a final report to ASHRAE. Uh, the final report has been approved. Um, uh, I don't know what's going to happen in committee at ASHRAE, but, you know, in theory, um, they could take the information and run with it and modify uh, standards. I, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. So we've sort of handed over our final results. Our goals are to get the word out about Josh's research and to publish um, several journal articles so that, um, so that the world knows about this and to get word out on shows like your own so that practitioners can, can know what we're doing. And, and I really love the fact that you've got this research to practice uh, bent on your show, Joe. It, it, it's great because this is an audience that, you know, academics normally can't reach. You know, we write journal articles that get, you know, published in some journal somewhere that you might not be able to access at all unless you pay to access that journal. So, um, so our our job right now is to get the word out. Uh, from my perspective, the technology exists today to start doing this today. If if people know that there's benefits associated with it, and so we're getting the word out. And as I said. You know, right now, I, from my perspective, residential applications are kind of marginal unless it's the unless you have a person in the home who's got respiratory problems, and I think it's not marginal. I think it's it makes sense. But all the other building types we've looked at in our models across 12 different cities in the United States, it just seems to make a lot of sense. Sure does. Now, Josh, let let me turn it over to you for a moment. Within any research I see, any any published research, there's going to be a list of of topics for future consideration or future research. What were your what's your list? What, you know, if you had uh, if you had the purse strings, what would you spend money on researching next that would piggyback onto what you've done here? Sure, Joe. Um, something that definitely needs some consideration is some more work on long-term testing of these filters to see how they perform over time. So, you know, we're particularly interested in the the ozone removal efficiency over time, as we know the the carbon will you know, kind of decompose as it's exposed to more ozone. We're kind of curious how long some of these commercially available filters will last in the field. Um, <clears throat> we're also interested in the pressure drop 
uh, across the filter over time. Obviously, that's going to be related to the energy uh, penalty uh, for using the filter. And, um, you know, also just other, other applications uh, to use the, the filter to improve health. Um, as Dr. Corson mentioned, um, we're particularly interested in ozone, but, you know, when you reduce ozone in a building, you're also reducing reaction products. So some of the other reaction products we consider were formaldehyde and acetaldehyde. So um, that definitely deserves some more research in the future, I think. And what, what was the primary type of mechanical system that you were evaluating here? Is these basically rooftop type units or was it a, a broad spectrum? Uh, are you are you talking in particular for the commercial buildings? Yeah, or? for the commercial, I'm sorry. Yeah, just basically your your typical rooftop units. And the whole the whole idea behind this research, one of the key the key things we're looking at is we want to minimize additional costs. So basically we're looking at commercially available filters that already fit in the filter racks of these buildings. Um, you don't have to do any modifications. You basically just swap it out like you would a regular filter. So uh, that's that's the type of uh, systems that we were considering. And this could be, uh, and I think we talked, I don't remember if we had it on this part or when we were in, before the show, we talked about the fact these are available for one inch, two inch, four inch, and have you had a chance to model um, which of those it works better on, or have you have you looked at you know in in field studies um, which which would work better? Sure, I, I've, 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 we actually have a test rig here at the um, University of Texas campus. So basically, it's a large rig attached to an air handler, and we just recirculate the air through the filter, and it has a one-inch uh, filter rack. So basically, my research was on one-inch filters. And, um, you know, it really depends on the media. As I mentioned, the, the carbon fiber cloth is really not as effective at removing ozone as the bulk media. And um, that's something that I think really deserves some attention in the future is, you know, maybe looking at different types of filters to see which ones are the most effective, and that way we can kind of steer industry to, to focus on those if they want to remove ozone. Yeah, it would be tough to get um, much bulk in in a one inch filter i would imagine in that type of configuration as you get bigger filters it would seem it, it may actually uh, your results make them out better did you did you look at that at all um yeah that's that's something we're i'm actually evaluating right now i i'm still going through my results from the test rig so i don't have the final results right now okay. um, but you know the one inch filter with the bulk media um Despite, you know, just being a one-inch filter, it was actually really effective at removing ozone. I saw, um, to just give you a number, is about 40% uh, ozone removal efficiency through that filter. Single pass. Single pass. Single so, pass. So, you know, obviously if you have the large filters, like I talked about in the laboratory, where you have 20 pounds of carbon in the filter, um, you know, that's definitely going to have longer-term potential to remove ozone. It's going to remove a higher amount. But, you know, we're particularly interested in seeing if we can help, you know, the general public, you know, particularly these one-inch filters, that's what most people use in their homes. So um, that, that's kind of why we focused in that, that particular direction. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, we're, we're running up on uh, a couple of minutes to go here. What a, you know, real quick, I, I got a couple of minutes. I want to ask a quick question about your, your work in the Middle East. Um, you know, you, you did some work, and it was, it was primarily particulate, if I recall the study properly. You were looking at, you know, the exposure to the to the troops serving in the Middle East. Can you just give listeners a little bit of a summary of what that was about and, and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, most people probably aren't aware, but, you know, in, in different locations around the Middle East, 
um, the outdoor air pollution is considerably worse than, than here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, that was, that was something that was kind of interesting for me, especially as I mentioned my, you know, one of my colleagues developed some respiratory issues after one of our deployments. And, you know, a lot of it's a combination of many things. There's obviously not an EPA in Iraq or Afghanistan, so there's no regulation of uh, pollution. And in Iraq in particular, the, the fuel that was used was leaded, so they used leaded gasoline there. Uh, there. Hmm. So obviously you have some, some particles with lead attached. There's also, um, I was actually just reading a paper recently that there's, there's some bacteria, that, um, toxic bacteria that attach to the crust of, of desert soils. And so when a vehicle drives out over it, it breaks up and suspends, and those can cause some issues. Um, additionally, you know, in one of my deployments, we were uh, basically using a burn pit to remove trash and, uh, you know, human waste. So basically, we'd have a 45 or a 55-gallon drum that was cut in half. Um, basically, you do, do your business in that drum, fill it full of JPA jet fuel, and light it on fire. And that was right next to our camp. So... There's a lot of particles in that uh, emission, as well as you know chemicals that are attached to the particles that could be toxic. So there's a lot of different things that are going on that you know because you know it's an expeditionary environment. We're not necessarily concerned about the uh, you know the health at that point. It's more about taking care of the mission that that we have. So um, if anything, I would try to you know maybe change change this by you know educating people more about the the hazards of doing business like this hmm. that's interesting i didn't realize and obviously i'm you know i wasn't in, uh, in the middle i can imagine how bad it was too in the first gulf war when um the oil wells were on fire and all of that do you have any um th did you look at that at all uh there have been some studies linking um like Lou Gehrig's disease um to possible exposure from oil wells and things like that during the first gulf war I think that there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in this area, um, and unfortunately, I think that you know it's it's going to be a while before we see a lot of the the long-term effects of exposure. Um, generally, most of the people in the military are younger-aged people; they're pretty resilient uh, to exposures. But you know, some things could take years to to, to matriculate, basically, and and cause health issues in the future. So I think that you know, in the next 10, 15 years, I would, I would see, uh, I would, I would say personally, I, I predict a lot more issues coming out uh, in regards to exposures to pollutants in deployed environments. You know, and again, it's obviously if we could prevent this, then the costs down the road are going to be a lot lower. I mean, you know, it's again, it, you spend a little upfront, maybe change the methods a little bit, but then you don't have these problems down the road, and uh, you know. Sure. And Go ahead. Yeah, you know, in regards to burn pits, that became a big issue. I think Congress, you know, had some some uh, hearings on it, and you know, one of the new policies was in a large base you would install an incinerator to basically incinerate the trash at really high temperature, that you know, in, in turn reduces the emissions of uh, particulates and other volatile compounds. But Joe, Joe I would add, yeah. when I hear Josh tell stories about his service. Um, it makes me think that, you know, we we thank service people for going out in the field and putting their lives on the line, and we think about the enemy. Um, we don't normally think about the amazing environmental conditions that a lot of our service people have to work in, and, and that's just one more reason to thank them.
Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Is there anything, you know, I kind of went, I didn't go quite with my script here, Josh. I hope that didn't throw you off too much, but uh, this is just one of those subjects where I felt like let's let it flow and, and see how it goes, and I really appreciate you joining us. I thought it went well. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything we missed before we go? No, I just I really want to say thank you for, uh, you know, allowing us to, to be on your show and, and, you know, get the word out about some of this research. I think it's important, and I'm really hopeful that, you know, we can maybe change some the policies and educate people in the process and, you know, hopefully improve people's health in the long term. Well, thank you for joining us. And, Dr. Corsi, anything you'd like to add? I just want to thank you again, Joe. These have been, you know, great, great opportunities for us to get the word out to what in academia we call the real world, you know, people that are on the front lines that actually apply these kinds of technologies. So thank you very much for that. And um, I'm going to try very hard to work with Josh to get him out of here by May so he can be Dr. Aldred the next time you speak with him. <laughs> Fantastic. That would be great. That would be great. Uh, well, gentlemen, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I love these shows. I'll be honest. I, I think these are some of the best shows we do. And, and I think it's vital that we get the word out. So, uh, once again, thanks to Dr. Richard Corsi and, and to uh, hopefully very soon, uh, soon to be Dr. Uh, Dr. Aldred there, Josh Aldred. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it, and um, we'll hopefully see both of you soon. All right, thanks, Joe. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests. Uh, next week, the Z-Man should be back in the saddle here with me, uh, and of course, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners, my, my engineer here, Frank Amato, and uh, I don't see anybody got the, the Zappa part in there. I, I got a good question out today, Frank. But anyway, uh, we'll be back here next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. I said, everything gonna be alright.